Hi, this is the Reluctant Psalm Podcast with Chris. Thanks for tuning in to episode three. Just wanted to take a moment to tell everybody that I was approved on Apple iTunes, um, and now I'll be working on Spotify. So if you search uh, Reluctant Psalm on Apple iTunes, you'll be able to pull up my podcasts, or you can still search them on Podbean. Again, if you have any questions or any feedback for me, please feel free to send it to thereluctantpsalm at gmail.com, or follow me on Instagram at reluctantpsalm, and uh, send me a message on there. Ask me some questions if there's anything that you want me to cover. So uh, today is May 4th. Uh, May the 4th be with you, as uh, we often like to say in the group of friends that I have, uh, nerds, that is. Um, Again, the podcast is going to mainly be focused around wine. We'll throw in some beers and spirits here and there, um, a wide array of topics. So I'll try to cover everything, keep it concise as much as possible, and stay on topic as best I can. So a few updates in the world today, uh, spirit world or distribution world. Um, Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits, which is one of the largest uh, wine and spirit distributors in the nation, has uh, furloughed most of their employees until the end of July 31st. Now, uh, July 31st being kind of the furthest out date they see, um, but it's a 60 to 90 day furlough. If uh, things get better and restaurants start reopening and everything's back to normal, they'll obviously bring them back earlier. But for now, they've uh, laid off many of their employees. Uh, So again, we see the effects of COVID-19, the coronavirus, spanned beyond just restaurants and our day-to-day lives with getting to and from work or going to and from work. And now we see it touching all the way into distribution, and it really reaches far beyond what we see on a normal day-to-day level in the restaurants or on the streets or in the retail stores. This is uh, having a lot of ripples in the pond, if you will. It's a big stone in a small pond. Uh, causing a lot of issues for everyone in in every um, company across the world. Um, So touching again on kind of what I talked about last podcast was Texas restaurants, or Texas as a whole, reopened on the 1st, so four days ago at this point. Now, you would think that many of the restaurateurs would be ready to get back in there and ready to push forward and ready to just get back to normal, which we're seeing in some cases, but in some cases we're not. We're, we're seeing a lot of restraint. We're seeing some, some holding back and some safety precautions, if you will. So a few of the restaurants in Houston um, are doing a really great concept. They're doing Zoom wine dinners. So the wine dinners are you swing by the restaurant, you pick up a lot of food that's already partially cooked, obviously a salad that's not dressed, you just dress it, it's quite simple, or bake some things, or maybe microwave some things to get them up to exactly where you want them. Along with that comes three bottles of wine, and it's four courses. And you get everything set up, you open your wine, you have your glasses ready, and you click on your computer, and you're essentially Zooming, FaceTiming, or however you'd like to call it, with winemakers across the world, and with psalms from different areas of the country, and it's really a, a interesting concept. Certainly, a um, amazing way to bounce back from such a difficult thing that's going on in our careers and our industry. 
uh, really kind of takes a lot of thinking outside the box for something like that, I think. Um, most of the restaurants that are doing these are doing them fairly regularly so far, um, but they're also still not opening to the public. So they're still curbside. There's still delivery in certain cases, and I'm sure through many of the apps that people are using now for food delivery. But these restaurants are doing well enough that they don't feel the need to open and possibly risk the health of their employees or their guests, but also an interesting effect of everything being reopened for the restaurant industry is the restaurants are only allowed to have 25% occupancy. Now, if you look at a normal business plan in the service industry or an ideal one, it's a little different now than it was when I first started. Social media and advertisement is a little bit more prevalent, but you would take all of your sales and you would divide them into four categories. One being overhead, which generally makes up about 30%. If you're running a tight ship or you're buying inexpensive products or buying in bulk, you can normally cut it down less. And we're talking overhead with food and wine and beer and liquor all across the board. You've got your labor, which if you can keep it below 30% is always a really great idea. And you've got advertisement. Any kind of advertisement going on is always kind of a fixed rate going out the door every month. And then they say that you have profit. And so normally what the idea is, is that it's 30, 30, 30, 10. So 10% being the profit that you actually walk away with. And that 10% obviously can kind of go back into reinvesting into the business until the business gets to a point where you want, and then you can take your money out of it. Uh, But a lot of people will actually take the 30% overhead and use that towards things like maintenance, things of the sort. So anyways, some of the restaurants are deciding not to open. Um, There's a few that have decided not to open until the 6th. There's a few that have decided not to open for an extended period of time. And there's even some coffee shops in Galveston, Texas, Mod, as this really fun little boutique coffee shop down there. And they have decided to just continue to do curbside pickup. Um, And I really kind of think that that's a, a great idea. It's not necessarily that you have to go in or that you have to open. It's just the business's plan to continue things as they are. Uh, If you think about some of the layouts of some old buildings, I'm in San Francisco now, a lot of old buildings here. Galveston, there's plenty of old buildings or old buildings across the country. Some of the buildings are really narrow. And if you're considering an establishment that can only fit 25% of the clientele, it almost makes more sense to just stay open for to-go orders if the foot traffic for the to-go orders doesn't interfere with the dining room, it might be a different story. But if the foot traffic walks directly through the dining room and, and if the people that come in to get their takeouts need to use the restroom, they're generally walking through the entire dining room, which is essentially nulling everything that you're doing to kind of try to protect everyone. The idea is that when somebody sits down at a table, they'll be able to take their mask off and they'll be able to enjoy a great cocktail or a great glass of wine, enjoy a delicious meal, smell the smells of the dining room. Um, But if somebody keeps walking in and out, walking past their table, it kind of eliminates the six-foot rule. Is the person at the table, every time somebody walks by, supposed to put their mask on? It almost seems silly to even consider opening for 25% business. Now, that being said, I can completely understand why people would, um, you know, being closed down for the period of time that many businesses have been closed down for, 
kind of makes you need to open it. You need the money, especially with, you know, all of the issues going on with small business loans. I know plenty of places are getting their small business loans now, but you're talking about March 14th, oh, I'm sorry, March 16th, when we closed down in San Francisco and places are just now getting their small business loans. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of crazy to think that it took that long, especially considering that large corporations obviously got much bigger loans much more quickly. Anyways, um, without getting too into that, uh, I think it's really interesting that some people in different businesses uh, throughout Texas are deciding to take a step back and kind of be patient. Um, I think patience is something that is difficult. It's not always an easy thing to be patient, especially in today's society where anytime you want something, you click a button and it's at your front door, whether it be food or clothing or furniture, everything just gets delivered. That being said, I certainly take advantage of those things also. Placed a Home Depot order recently to uh, get some new furniture in. Um, just trying to spruce the office up a little bit. Now, you can't really see my air quotes, but by office, I just mean the apartment. The 600-square-foot apartment in San Francisco that we stay in, and it's awfully small. So it's always nice to kind of make it look a little bit nicer. If it feels more professional, maybe I'll get... A little bit more professional on the podcast. Probably not the case. Um, on that note, I'll try to lighten things up a little bit. I tend to get a little serious and tend to focus a little bit too much on details. So I'm going to try to lighten things up. And one of the ways that I'm going to try to do that is by, uh, you know, maybe imbibing a little bit while I'm doing the podcast, having a, having a beverage or having a glass of wine. Um, so today I'm drinking this really beautiful white wine from Domaine Jamais. So this is a Côte de Rhone Blanc. And for anybody that's not familiar, Rhone is a region within France. Uh, generally, Côte de Rhone would mean that it could be a blend of the grapes that grow in the region, whereas certain uh, vineyard uh, varietal-specific expressions like Côte Roti, Condrieu, exist that focus specifically on one varietal. Côte de Rhone is generally a blend. Now, that being said, this blend is a 2017 uh, blend of Marsan, Viognier, Rousson, and Grenache Blanc. These are all pretty traditional grapes in this area. Um, Viognier is something that most people have probably heard of, along with Marsan and Rousson. If you're into rosés, we see it a lot here in the United States. But Viognier is something that we have come to kind of understand in America as a very floral, very aromatic, and sometimes perceivably sweet wine. And that's not always the case in old world expressions of the grape, and it's not always the case in new world expressions of the grape either. So since I feel like most people understand Viognier at least a little bit more, I just wanted to give some information on Marsan. Um, so Marsan is a grape that is generally really small grapes and, and a really loose cluster, so they're not as tight or as large as some other grapes. And skin is, you know, medium. It's not a thin-skinned grape at all like Pinot Noir or Nebbiolo. This grape is the most widely planted grape in all of the Rhone Valley, uh, which is pretty interesting considering that most of the time when you hear Cote de Rhone, you think red, or most of the time when you think of a Rhone wine, you think of a red wine. And Marsan is generally used in whites, um, not to say that there hasn't been some splashes of it in red wines throughout time, but 
a kind of interesting, a little less known grape. And when we see wines in America that have Marsan, they generally always have Roussan as well. Um, they just kind of balance each other out. Anyways, Marsan is a really famous grape if you go to the region of Hermitage. So in Hermitage, it's still blended, but it's generally Marsan focused as well. And you get this really great expression out of the grapes. So the grape itself is normally a little brownish, goldish hue to it when it ripens. Um, and it does really well in uh, rocky hillsides, which Northern Rhone generally consists of. So it's kind of in a really great um, environment for its its own well-being, which I uh, one time had a wine and spirit educator um, who made a little song, if you will, about how to remember uh, regions, grapes, things of the sort. And in the old world, it's all about that place, about that place. But it's in the new world, it's all about that grape, about that grape. So in old world wines, um, you generally have to consider that the grape is kind of grown in the region for a reason. They're not trying to take the grape and grow it in an environment that nobody's done it in before. They realize that the grape has done really well in that area, and that area speaks to the grape. Um, and that's kind of the mindset behind Domaine Jamais. So Domaine Jamais is located in the Cote Roti, and they're really like a terroir-focused winery. Um, they're pretty minimum interventionalists. They don't really mess with the wine on a, on a large scale. Um, but Jean-Paul Jamais started making wine alongside his father in 1976. So he's got about 43 harvests now, 43 and a half if you consider the time of year that we're in. Um, 43 and a half harvests under his belt. That's a long time. That's 40 years. That's a lot of experience. And and you have to consider the fact that in 40 years, 40 plus years now, this gentleman's decided that the best way to handle the wine is to let it speak for itself which is really a fascinating take and not something that I think New World winemaking does a lot of. Not to say that it doesn't, and there's a lot of really amazing wineries and that want to focus more on post-harvest or focus a little bit more on blending the grape, and there's plenty that want to focus on, you know, having 100% varietally correct um, and just kind of a really fun, easy-drinking wine. You know, everything has its place. I, I like to say that. Even... The cheapest bottle to the most expensive bottle, it has its place, it, it, it serves a purpose. And again, if you're enjoying it, you're not doing it wrong. So I'm enjoying a little wine. Uh, it's currently uh, 12 o'clock here, um, and I don't really think that there's anything wrong with day drinking, but we'll see by the time I get to the end of this podcast. Might lose some uh, listeners or followers. Um well, might gain some more too. Might loosen up. Anyways, so back to the wine. The wine's really beautiful. I opened it two days ago. Um, there was a really powerful presence in this wine for 2017. Uh, Marsan driven wine. A lot of the Viognier characteristics show through. There's a lot of really beautiful floralness, stone fruit, and kind of like lemoniness. And when you drink the wine, it, it shows really exceptional minerality and it shows. A little bit of salinity, which is something that you don't really hear a lot in wine unless you're in the industry specifically. Now, when we say salinity, we are talking about 
saline, salty. So when you consider a wine to be salty, I, I certainly don't want that to sound unappealing for anybody that's not incredibly familiar with wine. It just means that there's a slight saltiness to it, almost a brininess, kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's really unique. If you've had Albarino, generally Albarino is kind of considered to have a little bit uh, of salinity to it. Um, so this doesn't have more than an Albarino, I would say. I would say it's very similar. Now, because this is a podcast about beer and spirits and everything, wine specifically, um, certainly far reach it from the Goza style beer. So I don't know if it's Goza or goes. Everybody kind of says it differently. But anyways, this is generally a salted beer with coriander and some kind of citrus. That beer is normally quite salty. It's really refreshing, but it's very unique in style. So if you've ever had a salty beer or a salty wine, uh, this is certainly not off-putting by any means. Neither are Albarino, in, in my opinion. So anyways, back to the winery. Uh, something really interesting I found out upon looking up the winery is, besides the fact that Jean-Paul Jamais has 40-plus years in the industry, uh, in winemaking, he has a son. Uh, that's not really surprising, obviously, because a lot of people have children. He has three children, to be more specific, and many of them focus on um, the, uh, sorry, all of his children focus on the winery. So one of his sons, uh, Loic, he went to South Africa and he made some wine in South Africa for a while or kind of partaked in the winemaking process in South Africa. And he returned to the Rhone, to Cote Roti specifically, and he saw his father and talked with his father. And now his son is actually taking a charge on a wine called Condrio. So this is a pretty established winery in the Rhone and, and generally Condrieu is a, I don't know, maybe to me I'm a little bit more of a cork dork, but Condrieu is a little bit more of a well-known style or a very claimed style of white wine coming from the Rhone. And to think that the winery wasn't producing something like that beforehand, even though they're growing enough Viognier that they can use it in their white blends, is kind of a really interesting thought that, you know, the youngest son of the family leaves, he comes back and he says, hey dad, why don't we make this? And so his dad actually says, yeah, let's do it. So in 2015, they decided to start making Condrieu. So Condrieu is 100% Viognier. Uh, it comes from the Condrieu region in Rhone. Um, but Condrieu is generally a, quite a powerful, full white wine. Um, definitely not similar to California Viognier um, in a traditional sense. There are some awesome California producers that have a little bit of a different stylistic approach. Anyways, the uh, interesting part for me was that this is now a multi-generational winery and that the youngest son is coming back from South Africa where they probably grow some Viognier but aren't heavily focused on Viognier and asks dad, hey dad, why don't we make 100% Viognier wine? Dad says, sure, why not? So it's kind of interesting to see how stepping outside of your comfort zone and stepping outside of your place of origin can kind of open your eyes, even if it's not to a new environment or new grapes. When you come back, it kind of gives you time to return home and kind of look at things with, with new eyes, kind of refreshed sense. I think oftentimes people grow up around something and they kind of don't take it as seriously, or maybe I don't want to say take it, take it for granted, but you know, 
it maybe loses its impression on somebody after a long period of time. Whenever I go back to Southern California, I always remember how beautiful it is and how much I miss it. And then whenever I come back up to Northern California, I always look at the trees and I look at, obviously in San Francisco, how close I am to the water. And I think, wow, this is really beautiful until I get my uh, rent, uh, until I have to pay rent, which obviously I, I kind of lose my fascination in San Francisco each month a little more. Um, no, but I, I love San Francisco. I'm very happy to be here. And there's so many opportunities and so much potential uh, in the city for me in the service industry, but for many people. Um, so rent is just kind of like a tuition, if you will. It's what I'm going to consider it. I'll pay a lot of money to learn a lot. So back on kind of another topic that I brought up, um, I wanted to take a moment today to talk about day drinking. Now, day drinking, I think some people, when they think of it, they think of degenerates and drunks. And I'm not talking about going to the liquor store and buying a handle of vodka and just starting to sip away at it first thing in the morning. And I'm certainly not talking about Bloody Marys, which is vodka with tomato juice, so it's you know, not that far of a reach. Just day drinking in general. I think drinking all things with moderation, obviously, is could be good for you, could be bad for you. But day drinking, if you don't have anything to accomplish for the day, I think is kind of like one of those really fun things to do to kind of spoil yourself, again, within moderation. So you don't want to spoil yourself too much and ruin your Monday or your Sunday or uh, I don't even know what day of the week it is anymore, which is why it's okay for me to day drink in the morning, I guess. Um, Every day is day drinking day if you're quarantined and you're furloughed or you're unemployed or whatever. Uh, Well, certainly not trying to encourage anybody to go out and get drunk. Anyways, so day drinking, I think, is something that people really kind of think about when you work when you work weekdays and you have weekends off. And obviously, again, if you have something to accomplish, day drinking maybe isn't the best idea unless you plan on going home and taking a really good nap. But you don't want to affect your, your sleep schedule too much where you can't sleep and obviously throw off your whole weekend. But day drinking, I think, is something that takes place a lot more than just with drunks and just besides the brunch table. I mean, day drinking is part of human history. When I say it's part of human history, I... I Specifically talking about beer for breakfast. Beer for breakfast is something that I try my best not to always partake in, but beer for breakfast is actually something that was done a lot prior to the 1800s. Um, Water was unsafe to drink. Uh, Coffee was really expensive. Hot cocoa was expensive. Uh, Beer was cheap, and beer has a lot of water content. And you'd wake up in the morning, and what would you have with breakfast? You'd have beer. Um, There's obviously quite a few calories in beer, so if anything, it's getting you ready for the day, Um, again, within moderation. So besides beer for breakfast in the 1800s and besides modern-day brunching and drinking uh, bottomless mimosas, woo, uh, or, you know, just picking up a nice bottle of champagne to have with breakfast or Bloody Marys or anything of the sort, There's airport drinking, which, I mean, I am not a world-class traveler. I've traveled quite a bit, and I've been very lucky to travel as much as I have. And I've spent a lot of time in airports flying back and forth from Texas to Southern California, and now Northern California to Southern California. 
if I'm not driving. Obviously, if I'm driving, I'm not going to be day drinking. But if you walk into the airport and it's 8 a.m. and you're waiting on your flight and it gets delayed and you want to have a beer, you want to have a cocktail, why not? I mean, at least you're not the pilot. If you're the pilot, it's <laughs> it's different. You certainly don't want to be um, drinking and flying or drinking and driving for that matter. But I would just say that airport drinking is it's okay. It's okay to drink in the airport if you want to. Not if you have a little screaming kid that you're neglecting that's running through the airport terrorizing everyone else. Obviously, you should probably put the mimosa down and get back to little Timmy and make sure that he's doing okay. But if you're on your own or you're with some friends and you want to have a cocktail in the airport first thing in the morning or in the airplane, go for it. The other concept is, is hair of the dog. Sometimes people think when, oh, when you go to bed at night and you're really drunk, you wake up in the morning and you're really hungover, you should have another beverage. They call it the hair of the dog that bit you. And the kind of story behind that is that you would need the hair of the dog that bit you to create a cure for the bite. Um, so the idea is, is that whatever you're drinking the night before, you wake up in the morning and you just keep drinking. I don't really find that to be helpful, especially, again, if you have something to accomplish the next day or if you're headed to work. Obviously, I highly uh I definitely think that you should not be indulging in uh, drinking first thing in the morning. Unless, in, unless, of course, that your job is to drink in the morning. Now, some people might be kind of uh, astonished that I'm saying that or think that I'm full of shit. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are people who do it. Uh, I've had an opportunity to work for a large distributor. Um, one that's also furloughing people during this difficult time. And during my tenure there, every Monday morning, we had what's called a GSM, General Sales Meeting. And I lived in Galveston. The office was in Houston. And so I would drive an hour every morning to go to this general sales meeting. Now, you get there at 9 a.m., which means I leave my house at about 7.30. I was stopping getting donuts and coffee or something on the way, obviously not priming my palate for drinking wine. But you get in at 9, about 9.15 or 9.30, you're drinking wine. And now when I say drinking, you're not drinking like drinking to get drunk, but you're trying wine. And even if you're spitting, your mouth is still absorbing some of that alcohol. You're still getting alcohol in your bloodstream, even if you're spitting it out. So I'm certainly not saying that I would get drunk and I would drive an hour back south, but, you know, drink some, spit some, whatever. But luckily, most of the time we had breakfast there, we had food there, and after several tastings, generally three to five wines and generally five to six suppliers, you've had an opportunity to try 30-plus wines. So it was a lot of fun, except occasionally we would have a spirits supplier come in, which wasn't always the best thing, especially if you had not participated in Hair of the Dog and you were hungover from the night before, and the first thing that you're tasting in the morning is rum with your coffee. It's not so appealing. Uh, day drinking has never really been for me. Um, it's certainly not been something that I'm a huge fan of, for myself, hair of the dog, I just don't 
feel like it in the morning. I would rather just sleep all day, curl up in the fetal position and take a really hot shower and question my life's decisions. That always seems to do the trick for me. So anyways, um, if you were going to participate in day drinking or you're going to go to brunch with your friends and you want to have something to pair with breakfast or brunch, uh, there's obviously the mimosa and the Bloody Mary root, the tomato juice and the orange juice are always kind of nice, but some safe bets are Gamay. So Gamay is a grape that's uh, used to produce Beaujolais. Not to say that that's the only time that you grow the grape or the only time you'll try the grape, but Beaujolais is a really great wine. Beaujolais kind of originated as what people know as Beaujolais Nouveau, as a Thanksgiving wine. It's a wine that you would have at dinner a red wine that pairs with everything. A red wine that pairs with turkey, a red wine that pairs with stuffing, red wine that pairs with maybe not the little jello casserole that everybody always had, but but just a easy drinking red wine. So there are some really amazing, really fantastic Beaujolais out there, but generally when people think of Beaujolais, they think of kind of an easy drinking Thanksgiving wine that, you know, maybe you got to sip on when you were 12 or 13 and your uncle would leave his glass aside. And then Nebbiolo. So Nebbiolo is one of my favorite grapes. When uh, I took my trip to Italy, um, I'm, it was in October, so no reason to fear anyone. I haven't been traveling since the beginning of the podcast. I stayed in Piedmont, and Piedmont is northwestern Italy. And there's a lot of small regions, and there's a lot of larger regions. But anyways, I stayed in this small little area called Serralunga d'Alba. And in Serralunga d'Alba, they grow a lot of Nebbiolo. Not to say that they don't grow uh, Barbera, but they grow a lot of Nebbiolo. And the surrounding regions, Barola and Barbaresco, are esteemed and very well known for their Nebbiolo production. So both Barolo and both Barbaresco are known for 100% Nebbiolo productions. Barolo is considered the king of wine, and Barbaresco is considered the queen of wine. But I don't know if that necessarily applies to the world of wine as it is now, because when I think of a queen of wine, I think of maybe something really elegant, really plush and round and just kind of a really delicious wine that just makes you want to sit there and just keep sipping. And when I think of a king, I think of something really strong and really powerful. And that is what Nebbiolo is. Uh, Nebbiolo, they say if you're doing a blind tasting and you taste something that's really high alcohol, really high tannin, and really high acid, there should be no question in your mind that it's Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo is uh, a grape that people have tried to grow outside of Piedmont for a long time, and and I wouldn't say that they've done it successfully on a large scale. I think there's some wineries in California that are actually growing Nebbiolos. As I said in one of my podcasts, in Temecula they were growing Sangiovese, which is another Italian varietal, which I thought, you know, obviously this isn't going to work, but it was really, really fantastic. Um, so, you know, I would be more than happy to try a Nebbiolo from California or Washington or anywhere, really. But Nebbiolo is kind of a tricky grape. It actually gets its name from the fog that settles in um, in Piedmont. And so Piedmont is kind of like a big valley, a big bowl, if you will. The Swiss Alps uh, surround it on the north and the west. And then uh, I think I have my my territory's right. Uh, Liguria is actually a small region to the south that has a lot of hills. So throughout the day, generally 
uh, Piedmont has some fog, but especially in the wine-growing regions. And so Nebbiolo literally translates to little fog. And the fog kind of serves as a blanket. It kind of serves as a way to more subtly stress the grapes than kind of intense daytime and intense nighttime temperatures, a huge diurnal shift. Um, But anyways, so Nebbiolo makes another great uh, wine. Now you could get a Longa Nebbiolo, you could get a Barbaresco, you could get a Barolo, but I think for breakfast, you might just want a regular Longa Nebbiolo. The reason is, is because the acidity and generally when you're having things in the morning you're having sausage and bacon and ham and you're having things with a lot of fat and a lot of richness and the acidity can really kind of cut through that and cleave through it if you will um and you know it's it's a delicious wine if you want to take a step up from bottomless mimosas not again not that there's anything wrong with them they all serve a purpose if you're going for volume of consumption and you're not really going for quality of consumption then I would recommend a really delicious Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais, maybe something from Morgon or Nebbiolo. Again, a Longa Nebbiolo I think does fine. I don't think you need to ride into the sunset with a Barbaresco or a Barolo at 11 a.m. Your day might not turn out the way you need it to. So taking a step back from day drinking, which I've been doing a fair amount of during this quarantine, I wanted to kind of touch on something that's maybe a little less known or something that's a new concept for me, something that I'm totally unaware of. Um, And one of those things is how, again, how the coronavirus or how this global shutdown of this pandemic is affecting the wine industry, the the spirits and and beer industry on on a vast scale beyond the issues of food production or beyond the issues of growing things or manpower or exposure, there's a lot of other things that get shut down that are considered non-essential businesses. Now, I tend to focus on the fact that I work in the restaurant industry. I feel like I got the short end of the stick because I got shut down. You know, but at the end of the day, I don't own a business. And I think if you owned a business in the restaurant industry or retail or grocery store and you weren't able to open or you weren't able to open safely, it could really cause a lot more issues than just me not, you know, me wanting a paycheck. So I think it's important to take a step back and realize that a lot of people have it a lot worse. And and honestly, if you don't know somebody that has coronavirus, you don't know somebody that's passed away from coronavirus, you're really lucky. Uh, and I think I'm really lucky to not have it. I'm really lucky that that my family has not been exposed to something like that, or if they have, they are all healthy and safe today. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I, I just think that it's always important to kind of take a step back and look at things subjectively and kind of realize that it's so far beyond ourselves. It's so far beyond one person. It's so far beyond our community or the restaurant industry, which I'm experiencing. Again, I, I, I like to talk a lot about opening your eyes or opening your mind or kind of, you know, humility or or learning to check yourself or your pride are things that I like to talk about and that I've focused on in previous podcasts. But I think a really important thing in this situation is patience. And I talked about patience before, but this interesting fact that I learned kind of opened my eyes a little bit more to the idea of patience. So 
I was recently talking to um, one of the owners of Skylark Winery, and I was just asking him some questions about how things are affecting production of wine. And not even really considering the question I was asking, I hadn't really put a lot of thought into it. It was just kind of a question out of left field. And he let me know that uh, there's two grapes that they've already picked and they've already fermented and are already basically produced. Um, one being Pink Belly Rosé, which is a Bandol-style rosé, um, Grenache-driven, and the other being their Pinot Blanc. Uh, so both of these wines are really delicious. They have a lot of on-premise presence um, for anyone not in the industry, it means on-premise consumption, so restaurants and bars. So obviously with restaurants and bars being shut down in San Francisco, you run into a bit of an issue. Now, that being said, beyond the fact that that some wineries are experiencing slowdown in sales of wine or people aren't buying, beyond the realm of just the industry or the service industry or retail business, it goes all the way back into production. It really kind of trails all the way back down the vein of wine and it goes all the way to the heart. It goes to the the place that the grapes are grown. It goes to the place where the wine is produced. So this Pinot Blanc, um, the Pinot Blanc and the uh, Pink Belly Rosé are right now finished. They're sitting in tanks and they're topped off and they have gas. So the wine itself is fine. There's not a lot of long-term effects that would come from it. If it sat in a tank for let's say two years, obviously, any wine would possibly show some effects from that. But right now the wine is done and it's ready to bottle. But there's some issues that go into that. And the issues are that a bottling line is not considered an essential business. And if you think about the fact that one winery that I just thought of or that I had an opportunity to speak to is experiencing something like this, that means that a lot of other wineries have already picked their white wines and already picked their rosés and already processed these things and are already in the middle of production and can't bottle. So you're talking about the fact that a tank that could be used to make more wine is now not being able to be used. And not to mention the fact that when and if, fingers crossed, that everything can reopen and go back to normal – in the Bay Area, we're, we're shut down until um, May 31st, so hopefully June we can go back to normal. Um, then all of these wineries are going to have wine that they need bottled, which is in turn going to put a lot of stress on the bottling companies or the bottling lines. And just, you know, I'm sure that they'll be able to handle it. It's certainly not the first time that they've bottled wines, but it's just something to kind of think of and to kind of open your mind to. Again, this podcast... I kind of tend to focus on the service industry because that's where I've cut my teeth. It's where I've worked my whole life. I've never done anything different besides a stint at a distributor, obviously. But at that distributor, I sold to on-premise accounts. So I sold to restaurants and bars. And a lot of those people are the ones that are getting furloughed now because the restaurants and bars aren't open. So they don't need a sales rep because they're not buying anything. So again, the... Wine industry is being affected on a production level. It's being affected on a distribution level. It's being affected on, most importantly for you and I, a consumption level. And, you know, it's great to see that everybody's drinking more during quarantine or that people are spending money. And it's certainly helpful to keep businesses alive. 
but it'll be really interesting to see how things go given this kind of choke point that wine production is experiencing. Again, just an interesting thing that I learned that I thought was important to touch on because I wanted to really kind of focus on patience. And patience is something that I think is another trait that's an admirable trait. And I think it's really difficult to have patience. And I see it a lot, actually, and I see it a lot in more tenured people in the service industry, less tenured people in the service industry. I see it a lot. It's obviously a human trait, so it exists beyond people in the industry. But speaking to one of the owners of Skylark was really eye-opening because I probably would be going insane if I couldn't bottle what I needed to bottle. I I would probably be losing it. Um, I don't necessarily think I would be out on the street protesting, uh, but I certainly would be getting very angsty. And patience is is the capacity to accept and tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Now, I don't know that off the top of my head. I read it off this piece of paper, so don't think I'm too smart. I'm certainly not. Um, There's always more to learn. I'm not saying I'm not smart, but there's always more to learn. I think it's important to always keep an open mind. But I just really think that it's important in this time that we slow down and we have some patience. We should take a step back and realize that life is finite and our time on this planet is finite. Obviously, if you believe in different religions, you might think I'm wrong, but just on my personal perspective or uh, subjectivity, if you will, I, I really think that it's important to slow down and kind of think about what's best or think in general. I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking. We live in a culture of constant stimulation and immediate gratification. And I talked about this a little earlier. If you want something, you click a button and it's at your front door or it's at the post office or somebody's knocking on your door and they drove to a restaurant or or a grocery store, picked it up and brought it to you. And I think a lot of times we think about those services and we don't really think about kind of the stuff that those people have to go through. So being patient is important. Slowing down and taking time to think is important. And I think that the quarantine can be really good if you let it be good. There's obviously negatives. There's obviously really terrible things going on. But if you take time to really just think and find the things to be grateful for and consider what might be the best option or what might be a good option, you can gain a little bit more perspective and and really kind of find some diverse answers besides just the one that jumps in your head or the one you read online. And I think that if you take time and you really just think about things, just thinking about those things is the first step of patience. Taking a moment to step out of yourself and look at things on a non-biased side really gives you an opportunity to experience something that you maybe wouldn't in a normal life. So patience is truly a virtue, and we'll see how it pays off in the long run because maybe it's not for the best, maybe it is, but either way, I'm along for the ride. So tune in next time, and we'll keep you updated, and 
We'll see how things go. Cheers.